Hi, this is Chip Rowe, the editor of the Highlands Current. This week on the podcast, Mike Turden interviews Evan Pritchard, a descendant of the Mi'kmaq people and founder of the Center for Algonquin Culture. A former professor of Native American Studies at Marist and Vassar Colleges, Evan is the author of several books, including Native New Yorkers, The Legacy of the Algonquin People of New York, No Word for Time, The Way of the Algonquin People, and most recently, Mapping Native New York. Here's Mike and Evan. So welcome, Evan. And um, I guess you live in the fine town of Rosendale, or is it a village? Or what? what's Rosendale's main claim to fame? Well, it's the, the People's Republic of Rosendale. Ah, Always. okay. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Well, let's get into it. I was very surprised when I looked at the 2020 census to see that Orange, Dutchess, and Putnam counties combined had 5,500, actually more than 5,500 people who identify solely as Native American. And I was really kind of blown away by that number. Does that number surprise you or, or maybe not? Yeah, it sounds high to me. Yeah, yeah. I think it was 480 in Putnam. and then mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very surprised because yeah. a lot of Natives really don't have a lot of respect for, you know, census and governmental meddling, so they might not say. And I don't generally say on census, yeah. you know, my whole long story, you know. Yeah. But I say it on the radio. Yeah. Would you have any idea what the uh, Native American population would have been in the Hudson Valley region, say, at its peak? Yeah. Well, that's a—nobody ever agrees on that ever. But Dean Snow and I worked together years ago, and I put some numbers in the book Native New Yorkers. And in terms of the boroughs of New York City— it was like 5,000 per borough or so. Uh, and that's, of course, not very much. But for those days, that you know, that's what the land could support. And then going county by county, you can see, you know, it's probably not going to be over 10,000 in any given county. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I hear numbers like 50,000 of like, say, Muncie and other 20,000 Wappingers because it never seemed to be as crowded. Yeah. Um, but nobody knows. There's just no way because... You know, the soil is not conducive to long preservation. Uh, but well, I would say 50,000 on the west side. Yeah. Not a small population, though. No. Well, it's some of the best territory for, for growing and fishing and everything, hunting. So it had that's actually a fairly high population. Right. And I worked out another formula, too, because I got tired of that one. You never know. But I, like it's 0.03% of the current populations. Because there's a kind of a correlation between the, the, the richness of the land and what it can support now or then. So I worked out a kind of a mathematical option in case, you know, it's looking at that. It came out pretty much the same. Yeah. I think in Putnam, it's like 0.1% of the population. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Native Americans today in those three counties, Dutchess, Orange, Putnam, mm-hmm. are they organized at all today? Like, would they... Would they get together as, we'll say, like Italian-Americans get together at an Italian-American club? Are the Native Americans in the Hudson Highlands today and in the surrounding areas, are they prone to do that? Or is it more of a very silent, very diffused culture? Ten years ago, it was booming. There was a tremendous amount of gatherings. And I went to everything I could. There were many powwows. And the powwows were really like the backbone of that community meeting. Mm. And there was a, you know, a guy named Gil Tarbox had a Daniel Ninnan powwow. And he, he, he just died. And his wife was telling me, his widow was telling me that, that he had this dream of Daniel Ninnam, like came to him and said, nobody remembers my name anymore. Do something to help them remember my name. He said, how about a powwow? And so uh, thus came the famous Daniel Ninnam powwow, which would gather thousands and thousands of people. Wow. And some of them very native, you know. 
And the way we did it, I was there at every one of them through 19 years. And the way it happened was just be like, nobody would necessarily say, well, are you white or are you Indian? They were all part of the Daniel Ninn powwow phenomenon. We right. just like didn't bother with that. It was actually a bit further down my list, but since you brought up the name, what should people today know about Daniel Nenham? What's his place in history in uh, Putnam County and an area? Well, he was the, the last of the great sachems, and when he was killed at Cortland Ridge, you know, his son, I believe, Aaron, I think, went west, where, you know, you'd say, well, you think, oh, the Wappingers survived out west, but unfortunately what happened was that he married an Oneida woman, and the rule was Oneida woman raises her kids Oneida, so all those Wappingers were raised only mainly, you know, knowing Oneida, uh -huh. but their genes are there, of course. And so his role is very important. And my belief is, and this is theoretical, but that when he was in his Stockbridge troops were at Cortland Ridge, he was defending George Washington in White Plains. And Washington was secretly in White Plains, and that was his boss. And, you know, there was uh, the dragoons were trying to find Washington, and he was there to distract them, and he got shot. And it's a, you know... Long story. So he is fighting on the side of, uh, of Washington George Washington, in, yes, in the Revolution. Yes, and didn't he try to recoup lands or something with the British Crown? Right, um, that's right. He he, you know, it's ironic. He studied English at Stockbridge School in Stockbridge, Mass, and he used that under the British, right? But then he used that to try to sue the British for their misdeeds, which were numerous. And the lawsuit was basically interrupted by the Revolution, mm -hmm. and he kind of felt that was. I think our general understanding of historians is like that was even better. Like yeah. let's you know let's do battle against them. We can't win the case, maybe, but we can certainly gain the independence. So he had a personal stake in George Washington winning the revolution. Yeah. But it's funny. I just think it's ironic that he's you know he studied English and learned quite well to read and write at the Stockbridge School under English rule, and mm. then he turned that around. Right. So he's from a long line of sachems. There was one sheikh was the grandfather, and the Nimhamau was another one, and Nimhamau signed the treaty for Hyde Park in 1697. He's ninety six, and he's got like a lot of lineage. And then there are those who say, well, really, he was lying, and, but I think he was So when you say sachem, is that the equivalent of a chief? The or chief is a European word. And so, yes, I say sachem, or sachem, yes, sachem, sachem. or sagama in other dialects, yes. Yeah. So can we talk about your ancestry a bit? What are your roots? Crazy roots. I have, uh, I was raised, you're a Mi'kmaq, and this is what you do. And I was initiated by my Aunt Helen when I was about 15. She was great Aunt Helen. Older, and she had tremendous knowledge of you know all kinds of aspects. And she said that we were part of the Miramichi of the Wolf Clan, and so you know she picked me because I looked a bit like her father, who was an honorary chief, but of the Passamaquoddy. As it turns out, because we're oh. all friends, right? Yeah. And so yeah, so I've honored that my whole life, and talked about the Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq people. And No Word for Time is the book that really. Where I really laid it was like my life book where I'm laying out my whole you know family story and all the stories and lore about our family. So getting back to the Hudson Highlands, my understanding is that they were occupied mainly by the Wappingers and the Lenape. Is that correct or not by me? Not by you? No, not by me. So who lived in the Hudson Highlands? The Hooland or Highland Indians, H O U G H L A N T Highland. And, you know, Dutch. And so the Highland Indians, yes. And those are part of the Wappingers, as I'm very sure. The word Lenape, I don't feel, applies to the Wappingers. And it's not really a contemporary term. It was not 
used openly in the 1700s or earlier. It was first noticed by the colonists in 1796, and that was after the colonial period. So I personally don't use it, except it's very convenient when you're dealing with Muncie and Unami, which I do, you know, with their histories. And when they would be together, for lack of anything else to call them, you can call them Lenape. And then out west, the Wappingers did join them. It's clear there's lots of ties between the Wappingers and the Muncie, mm. and then from the Muncie to the Unami. So... And even Daniel Ninnam mentioned that he had family ties to these tribes. So you can use Lenape, you know, for that convenience. But it's, you know, ordinary men or real men. That's what Lenape means. In the language, right. Right. Right, I've seen it referenced on many displays that they inhabited uh, the Hudson Valley. Is that just Mm -hmm. bad history? I believe it is. Yes, I believe it is. So you and I have gone back and forth on this a couple times about how Native Americans are organized about the hierarchy of nation, people, tribe, clan, etc. Exactly. And it seems to get very complicated and confusing, but maybe I can can, make I, it can, I, can I say that uh, you and the people who lived in the Hudson Valley, Hudson Islands, were part of the Algonquin people. Is that an yes. accurate general statement? We it can, certainly, we can... certainly is. Of course, the word Algonquin is a pr- right. mispronunciation by Sam Champlain. But let me make it simple, because you asked a good question. Okay, so let's take Putnam. And you've, you've got the case keys which are uh, Keski's Conk, I mean, in the garrison area. You've got several villages, but they're all, and you'd call each of these little village fires or translations of fire. And then overall, you have a village of all those, you know, Keski's Conks. So that's a village, and they would be called subtribes. But you also have Pesquasket, which is scattered villages in around Cold Spring, but they're all together. They're called fires, but together they are a subtribe or a village of Pesquasque. Uh, hmm. So those together, along with the Oscawanas and a couple of other tribes up there, they would form the uh, Nakpim nation, but we don't use the word nation because that sounds very insular. So we'd use the word, in the colonists, you know, have other words for that. But there was a sachemdom according to our conventional trade language. So a sachemdom is similar to a nation, but it's not as rigid. So all of Putnam County was a sachemdom called the Nakpim, which means where the mist rises, I believe. And then that and and eight other of these sachemdoms would form the Wappingers' whole string of sachems or nations, and that would be what the colonists called a canton, borrowing a term from the Swiss because it wasn't really (laughs) your typical confederacy, which the Iroquois and Haudenosaunee people already had a confederacy. It wasn't like that one. And so that's when the terminology gets tricky. But there also was this family called the Amorga Rekakan who kind of oversaw all these treaties, if you really read deep. And that seems to be a title. And those people were secret, and nobody knew exactly where this territory began or ended, and that's where you have some problems. But that's like, a, perhaps you could call that your confederacy. Okay. My summary of that is it's complicated. Well, it's just hoops within hoops. <laughs> so I'm just going through the whole level. There's about five or six levels. And right. by the way, the treaty with Johannes Bronck for the Bronx has all those levels. Wow. It's signed. So, again, getting back to our area here in the Hudson Highlands, the Native Americans who, who lived here, how would you describe them, their character, I guess, as a group? Were they farmers, traders, hunters, fishermen? What were they? How did they live? Well, they were here a lot of fishermen, and they really knew their rivers inside and out and upside down, and they mo- mostly named themselves after their rivers. And sometimes the chiefs named him or herself. They were female sachems, too, after the rivers— 
in a lot of cases because they really lived on the rivers. They used canoes, they used birch bark in the inland and then the dugouts when it was salty, like in the Hudson, which is, as you know, called the Mohican, he took the river that flows both ways. So, But they were also farmers. Yeah. And uh, so up around Poughkeepsie, there are certain spots where we knew it was good for farming and they would do so. And they would grow corn, especially where the tide would rise up and, and water the plants so they didn't have to leave their hammocks and just kind of, you know, I mean, they would save energy, right? Yeah. So places, for example, next to a tributary, and Metawan, by the way, I know we're right near the Metawan, or Metawan, originally Metawan, which means fish kill in Dutch, which means trout stream, literally. Mm-hmm. And then some reason they were playing with it, they changed it to Matawan, which is like the humble, dinky little stream. Okay, so and they that was the name that became that, the village that then became Beacon. Well, Fishkill, yeah. literally, Fi- but then yes, then Beacon, yeah. which is Matawan and Fishkill. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. So Beacon, you know, nineteen thirteen. You know, they combined the two together. And my little story is that they have the Misingue Island down at the mouth of the Fishkill, which means the little people. You know, the ones guarding the woodlands. And um, so that would be the, uh, what I say, Metzingues, and the Dutch call them Melzinga, which is like a Dutch word for like the way that a mill has a song when it spins. And Beekman was almost called Melzinger in 1913. Somebody said, wait a minute, that means fairies. I don't think so. That's the name of the reservoir now, as well as a restaurant in Beacon. That's what's left of it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine if Beacon had been named Melzinger after a bunch of fairies? (laughs) But there's still an island at the mouth of the Fishkill called so, again, the folks that lived here, were they a peaceful lot or were there conflicts and even warfare before uh, European settlement? Very peaceful. They were surrounded by friends and allies and relatives. Very little warfare. But they were they were proud of their abilities, though, yeah. and were quite capable warriors when it came up. You know, they they held their own against guns, you know, with bows and arrows. Yeah. What role did women play in that culture? Well, I like to talk a lot about the sunk squaws and um, giving a talk about sunk squaws at Lehman College coming up in two weeks. But also there was a sunk squaw named Mama Nukwe, who was quite powerful in the from 1677 to 1685. She was, you know, making peace and negotiating. And she was like during that Phillips, King Phillips War. She had a lot to deal with. And she kept the peace. She was a very convincing leader, Mama Nukwe. What do you call it? Uh, not a sachem, but, you know, sungsqua. So the women often had dominant roles, but it was not a, a matriarchal. It was more a biarchal, uh. whatever another word for that is. Male and females had different roles, and they were striving for equality. Mm. And that was the role. Now, you often had situations that weren't equal because the men, I mean, there was, a lot of women are pretty tough, but sometimes the men maybe felt stronger and taller and more muscular and maybe not be nice to them. Yeah. But that was individual. That wasn't by their philosophy. So in looking through your recent book, uh, Mapping Native New York, I mean, there are so many names of settlements, watercourses, trails in the Hudson Highlands alone In doing your research, is there a a wealth of well-documented information about that era, or do you rely on information passed down by elders? How do you do your research? Is it a matter of, is the challenge that there is not enough documented information or too much? Oh, both. I generally start with the oral tradition, start with talking to elders, and then I go into, you have to read every book. There's no other way because no one book is worthy and no one book is complete. 
However, there is a little book that I used to complete Mapping Native New York and the Dutchess County map, which I just recently finished, and it's hanging at the Institute for Rivers and Estuaries in Dennings Point, and, you know, a six-foot version. And that map, I used a book by Helen Wilkinson Reynolds, which is very rare, but there's one in the Adrian's Library, by the way. And so I used that, and it's hard to understand. So it took me a while to really grasp it. But, you know, I was given the Helen Wilkinson Reynolds History Award by Dutchess County Historical Society a number of years ago. And I thought, oh, that's great, but I, I better find out what she knew, <laughs> or I'm kind of faking it. So yeah. I finally I read it first, and I was like, oh, gee, I need to come back to this because this is deep. And then this past few months, I really went through it with a, you know, with a fine-tooth comb and figured out, you know, to finish the map as it is, you know, all these different details. Yeah. I was amazed. I read quite a few years ago, I read A Sorrow in Our Heart, The Life of Tecumseh. And um, it's probably my, I still consider it my favorite book of nonfiction. Well, I'm going to shake your hand. Okay. You we're can't see, see yeah. But that, that book is one, to me, one of my main inspirations. Wow. Because I read that before I had written a book. Oh. And I thought, what if I could do something like that? And that's kind of a main inspiration for Native New Yorkers. Because Native New Yorkers is a big book with lots of drama. Yeah. And maybe not as much drama as Sarah and Hart. Yeah. But I, you know, and some people say it's, you know, some of it, where did he get this? But he read diaries. Yeah. And it's amazing the detail. I was, in that book. yeah, I was... Again, uh, just floored by it. It's the only book where I read every footnote. I think there was like 150 pages of footnotes. Oh, I read them too. Right down to quotes from people who had contact with Tecumseh at a formal dinner at the governor of the territory. Like their observations of Tecumseh yes. the man. Like yes. I was just amazed how much detail there was. And the story of his death, you know, he taps, he gets the ramrod and he says, if I tap it four times on the ground, then I will ride. If you tap, the ramrod four times on my body, if I lie dead, I will rise up and we will be victorious. And of course, what happened was the guy was tapping his body three times and then he was shot. And so Tecumseh never resurrected. Yeah. I grew up about 40 miles from where he was killed. So that helped spark some of the interest. But it was just, it was a great, great book. But that's where the Muncie, that's where the most, uh, how's it, coherent Muncie community is right there, yeah. as it was then. Yeah. So what would have been the largest Native American settlement, say, between Bear Mountain Bridge and Dutchess County? What would the largest settlement on have what been side? on the east side of the river? Okay. Well, I'm certainly, I feel sure it's Pesquaskek. And let me explain about Pesquaskek, because that's the name of the mountain we call Storm King. Pesquaskek means the Great Mother. And there are times and places where you can see the mountain, and it looks like a woman lying on her back. And it was mainly a main village. You know where the uh, the gazebo up by the river? That was a main village right there. In the gazebo in Cold Spring. In Cold Spring. Right down there at the end of Maine. And and then there were scattered lesser villages. But that was Pesquaskek. That means, you know, they named themselves after the mountain that was on the other side of the river because rivers were not boundaries to them. And so they're honoring themselves and, and her by naming themselves the Great Mother, Pesquaskek. So Cold Spring was a village before it was a village. Oh, yes. <laughs> a decent village. Yeah. With, with some satellite fires, I said. The little fires right. was right. a word for a little village. But it, it was a sub-tribe. Yeah. You also mentioned in the uh, mapping native New York, you mentioned a camp or a fire, if that's the right term, at near the Garrison train station. Yes. And that's based on archaeology mainly. Yeah. I don't have like eyewitnesses of that. But there's plenty of archaeology from the Smithsonian, you know, in its early days. You know, right. they had a lot of archaeology. And so that's marked with several interesting finds yeah. with, you know, copper tools and whatnot. 
down yeah. there. And that was the Keskis Conk. And that means the sunny, the place where the sun shines on the rocks. Right. And There's a know, big flat rock well, uh, outcrop there right at well, the river. Well, that's, right? that's one theory. But my theory now, having walked around there a lot, is you go up to the uh, Fort Defiance, uh, Snake Hill. Right. And there the sun always shines. And you go up there and you can see for miles. Yeah. And it's very sunny and open. And that's what Keskiskonk. To me, means but yes, there's a there's a rock in the river, and that's a probably more practical interest. Yeah. I don't know. Now another place of local interest today that I think was of interest to uh, Native Americans was what we now call Bannerman's Island or oh. Palapala Island. Okay, uh, what was Palo its Pell. significance? Oh, its significance, loads, loads of significance. Okay, Paolo Pell. As far as I'm concerned, pow is it could be a big rock. It's often a word used for a big rock. Laup means to plow or to divide, and that's a very common word. And pl I could interpret as drinking water with the possessive. So it's like the rock that plows their waters huh. or the rock that divides their waters, and that makes perfect sense as to where it is. It's in the middle of a very important crossing, as you know. That was the great you know ferry route. Natives had f- important ferry routes across the Hudson everywhere. And that was one of the main ones, which Hamilton and Washington both used, I believe. Did they charge a toll for the ferry or what? They would. Oh, let me take Poughkeepsie as an example. You know, Warriors Park, this bottom of the trail known as Main Street. And they would hold a large pole with a white cloth attached to the end and they'd wave it. And then, you know, the runner of the ferry boat, which might be a young guy who just wanted some extra furs and, and wampum, he would go and land and you know, he'd put out his hand and they'd give him beads or they'd give him furs or they'd give him, you know, wampum or, you know, whatever. And then he would take him across and there'd be the same thing, you know, over to West Point or over a beacon. That was the main one that was huge. Still had to get across the river. Yeah. Well, you know, the Newburgh Marina is on the other side Yeah, and that's where they landed and they go up Hasbrook, which was a ravine then like a very, you know, workable ravine with a little bit of water coming down. And of course, that's where the Hasbrooks built their big house because that was the trading post because everybody went by there. Mm. And then it continues. See, what I want to say is one of the most important things about Beacon is Route 52, the way that it's numbered through Fishkill Avenue and then on down through Madame Brett's, on down to Madame Brett's factory there. Mm -hmm. All that was a trail. And the numbers are often a ways that the government kind of keeps track of where the trails were. So Fishkill Avenue, that's you know, this trail, then it would go across at that ferry and then it would continue up. So 52 actually picks up as it should on the Newburgh side and then goes all the way to the Delaware River. Another place that seems to have been quite important, a crossroads of sorts, was uh, Dennings Point. Right. And how significant a geographical setting was Dennings Point? Well, you know, I just did this whole, I'm doing a film, which is a two-hour movie, talking about my maps there, and it's released this Friday, coming out online this Friday, so you can go to Denning's Point. But it was very important. It was a presqueel, which means it was attached so they could walk there. And then you'd land there, you could get on a canoe, and then you could go across there. So a lot of different tribes gathered there, not just Wappingers, but the Werenecks from over in Newburgh, Sometimes we'd live on this side. The Matawan were like at the landing point too. Is, and they were more of a Muncie group, but the Wernicks were there and certainly Muncie. And there was the Pachamis, who was another little known group of Wappingers, were recorded as being there as well as the Wappingers and the Matawan proper. I mean, it was crowded because so, that's where the trade was. I was going to say, were they trading, partying? Yes. What were they doing there? They were trading. Yeah. I think it was very serious. Yeah. And, the, and, and the, those landings really held society together. 
together. So they had to be somewhat administered. And so there were groups that would kind of like sit, administer both sides of these landings to make sure that everyone could travel. Mm. So it was pretty serious stuff. I have to wonder about Little Stony Point in Cold Spring again, because it kind of juts out into the river, if, if that was significant to uh, oh, I, inhabitants at the time. Yes, and I've, I spent a lot of time walking around. It's a magical place. I mean, yeah. it has a place of power. And yeah, I mean, I walked there many, many times all over that. The cliffs there are spectacular. Right. And there's that little cave, which I don't know if it counts or not. But yeah, I can't say authoritatively that it had any given significance. I never really got to the bottom of what's so special about Little Stony Point, but it is. Yeah, Maybe it's a crossing. I don't know. You mentioned uh, in terms of Beacon and Route 52, but there are many other, what would you call them, echoes of Native American life in in our region. I'm thinking Old Albany Post Road, which later became uh, Route 9, was originally a trail, was it not? Absolutely. It was a very important trail, and it was used for, you know, the colonists delivering the mail, but it was already called the Mohican Trail because it would go from Manhattan all the way to the Mohican Territory and on, you know, pretty far up. And... You know, I mean, a few spots that changed, like in Fishkill downtown, it, it kind of jackknifed where it crossed the river. But overall, that was probably the most important trail, mm-hmm. you know, and it goes to all important places. One thing I do is, is like I look at these trails and I say, OK, they're trade routes. What do they trade? And you notice that there's these important sources and resources all along a trail like that. Mm-hmm. It's not just going to somewhere, but as you go, you can collect items or trade items or whatnot. But it's different in each spot. You know, and I would say that uh, that it was probably made by mastodons. And there's the original trail. The original trail, you know, and there's a sign over by uh, that old colonial fort. The sign says, "Oh, this was made by animals." But really, come on, what fox is going to make a huge trail yeah. like this? The mastodons are the obvious candidates, and they are a lot like elephants. We know what elephants do, but mastodons had feet, sort of like paddles. Yeah, you can see that if you go into the museums, like the Albany State Museum, or you know, one of our Duchess Mastodons is now over at uh, Ithaca. But you can see their feet hang down. They're huge. When they get in the water, they can swim, as I'm told, like Johnny Weissmuller. Huh. But when they run, when they stampede, they create a tremendous trail instantly. So they, they did a lot of work for the Native Americans, they right? They did. And yeah. there was overlap. I mean, they were both living there at the same time. Yeah. Maybe smaller numbers for the Natives at first. But then they died out because it got warmer, and mastodons do not have large ears like the African elephants do, so they can't let off heat. So they died of tuberculosis, a lot of them. <laughs> and a lot of them died getting stuck in the mud. Wow. But they, I believe they made Route 9 because it goes along the ridge, which they would do for their own safety. And then also there was always water running alongside these trails. A lot of trails are actually portage routes where you're connecting one river to another. Hmm. So many place names mm-hmm. are obvious. Taconic, uh, Wappinger's Falls, uh, yes. Poughke- Poughkeepsie, Mayopac, uh, Oscawana, Wikipedia. Yeah. What, what's the story with Poughkeepsie? Oh, yeah, well, that's there's a whole book about that, like I mentioned, the Helen Wilkinson Reynolds book. But uh, Poughkeepsie means basically the um, the safe sheltered spring. And I recommend everybody who's within earshot Go to uh, Poughkeepsie, go to the main uh, post office and go upstairs to the stairs on the right as you're going in. On the landing on that stairs, going to the second floor, there's a painting on the side, which I think is highly accurate. It's based on eyewitness accounts of that safe sheltered spring. And I think that's what it looked like. Hmm. There were reeds around and there's a spring. The spring's still there. Tiahan and Constantino's insurance office is right there. <laughs> and they considered themselves guardian of the spring. But anyway, so then in the picture, in the painting, there's like a reed hut 
that protects the spring as something they might do. One of your books is titled No Word for Time or very close to that. No Word for Time. What, what is the uh, theory behind that or the reality behind that title? Well, when I went up north to the bush to learn from Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq elders, I wanted to learn the language. And they were like, well, you can't just do that. It'll take your whole life. And I said, I've got nothing better to do. <laughs> and they said, well, okay, so you're in for it. So then they started to train me the language. There wasn't really a method book. So I ended up writing the method book. And it was used on 29 reservations. I'm very happy about that. But my elder was tough. And he got me, you know, they kind of drag you through the mud and make sure you don't forget. And so I asked him, well, you know, after learning about 30 very basic concrete words, I said, oh, by the way, you know, what's the word for time? And I'm expecting a very simple answer. And he said, there's no word for time. We don't believe in that. <laughs> and I said, what do you believe in? And I said, well, you can see the sky and the sun and the moon, the things that really exist. And the, you know, there's that passage of process. But he said, there's no word, abstract word for time. We don't believe there is such a thing. Well, it's very interesting. And then I went to other tribes and other languages, and they all say the same thing. Like the natives don't generally go there. Mm-hmm. So the word they use is don or when. And, and then in face-to-face, face, you could say, well, when the sun's there, when the moon's there, when the, you know, the oak tree leaves are the size of a mouse's ear or whatever. There's all that. <laughs> but there's no abstract word for time outside of this world. You know, no external point. And when you look at the universe and say, well, this is the time, you don't look at it that way. It was very relative. It's actually very much in harmony with what Einstein thought in terms of relativity. Hmm. You mentioned uh, powwows earlier. I've attended two or three in recent years. And my question originally was going to be, were they organized for the Native American community or were they more for the general population as a way of educating people about Native American life? Oh, well, it's both. And and I also wanted to mention that a couple of years ago, almost all the powwows collapsed for some reason. Basically, people... I don't know, they got older and wanted to retire. It's a whole lot of work to put on a good powwow. And the ones that I was involved in were all fairly traditional, and therefore there was not a sense of, like, pandering. A lot of people don't want to be pandered anyway. So it's like if we do what we do for us and we do it the right way, people will love it. Right. And we will educate and outreach to the people. So we try to strike a balance. But right now, of course, COVID killed what was left. Right. There's very little in terms of powwows, and they're just starting to come back. But I would go to like 10 different powwows every year, and uh, you know I'd be a a speaker, a singer, a vendor. I found it very ironic that there was a powwow several years ago at Anthony Wayne Recreation Area. General Anthony Wayne was a hero, I believe, in the Revolutionary War, but he was certainly not a friend of Native Americans. Not at all. Mad Anthony Wayne. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, he was, he played dirty. Yeah. A little bit, but uh, he, I mean, he played an interesting role, but all the way out to, you know, Ohio and Indiana, you know, and he, he won a lot of battles. He wreaked havoc. He wreaked havoc. He won battles. And so I don't particularly feel I have to like him, but that doesn't mean we can't use his parks or whatever. Right. Now, you, you founded the Center for Algonquin Culture. What's your goal? What do you hope that that center, that organization will, will achieve? Well, we have a stated mission. I have a website, www.algonquinculture.org, which has been up on the Internet since 1998. And if you know the Internet, that's a really long time to be on one site. And it's like a dinosaur, but we keep it going, you know, on the same site. 
but it's good. So there's a mission statement about networking amongst all people who are interested in seeing the you know Algonquin culture continue and to add to the knowledge of it and to help creation continue as well. And that's some of the main goals. But one of the goals is to help unify Algonquin people because we're spread all over North America, both Canada and the U.S., and actually some in Mexico, coast to coast in some way. And so my goal has always been to unify or help to unify these Algonquian-speaking people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a tough job. I don't know if yeah. it's interesting. Well, Give me a life uh, lifelong job for right. You. So I never, I never have. What do they call that? Job security. I yeah. have job security because all oh, yeah. people are very free in their, you know, philosophy. A lot of individual freedom. It's very important to our people, which I think distinguishes us from most everybody else. Yeah. And uh, the freedom people, some call us. But of course, then unity is is almost impossible to completely get. So what might be my last question is, uh, okay. on a scale of one to ten. How good a job is being done in terms of educating young people today about Native American culture and life in this area and the nation, I guess, but this area in particular? Well, you know, I've been trying to be involved with this since about, I mean, I moved here in uh, 82, I think, 80 or so. And since then, I've been trying to help the schools teach Native culture in a respectful way. And I would say it's been very discouraging overall, but... During COVID, and I think maybe it had something to do with George Floyd, but as soon as the George Floyd stuff started to resolve, my phone st- started ringing a lot and people wanted to talk to me again. Hmm. And so I always you know, try to say yes and working with educational organizations and sometimes the schools. But the public schools still, I think, lag behind. I think individual private organizations have been working very hard, and I know because they call me, you know, to try to educate the children in a respectful way. And I think public schools have a ways to go, but they're certainly better since, what I said, since during COVID. And there was this idea about people seeing, you know, the George Floyd uh, uprising, if you Mm -hmm. wish. And for some reason, a lot of people's immediate reaction was to call Evan and find out what their ancestors might have done to the Native Americans. Mm. So, so yeah, it's getting better. That's my yeah. answer, getting better. It's getting better. You won't put a number on it. Is it a one moving towards a two or a three moving towards a four? Or what do you think? Well, I don't want to put numbers okay. on things, right? So, yeah. no, I don't know. I don't want to put a number on it. But it's certainly not five. Yeah. I think it could be, you know. But, yeah, I would say there were years when it felt like zero yeah. in the past. We're talking since 1982, since I've been in the area. But hmm. since then, I think just in the last year, it's been – because this whole change, this sea change, mm. and nobody, what's cool about it is that nobody started it. I mean, I'm kind of a father of land acknowledgments because I've been doing them since the 80s, right? Mm. I'm known for that. But now everybody's doing land acknowledgments, and that's really good, yeah. as long as they get the right info. I wanted to uh, rewind the tape, so to speak, and go back to Denning's point just for a minute. Oh, yeah. So at Dennings Point, has there been a lot of archaeological work done at Dennings Point since it was such an important site? There was a woman named Dr. Johnson, and I believe she's still alive, who did a lot of archaeology there. And and then she shared with a number of other archaeologists who showed me some of those artifacts. So I've seen those artifacts like three different times from three different people, and I'm sort of quite familiar with them. And then doing my museum work when I curated a show two months ago, I looked through their stuff. And then I went to Garrison to look at what they had, and what they had went back a little further. But it's only five miles away, maybe ten at most. So the Garrison Library, or no? There was a there was a site at the base of uh, oh, Indian the, the, Falls, 
Brook, Indian Brook. Okay. And there are people there, and they have a little tiny museum there, and it's good. And there's a rock shelter there. So I toured the rock shelter, and it was very interesting. And, you know, there's more there. Uh -huh. um, but you can anybody can go down there and make an appointment and look at the, their collections of artifacts. So they had some artifacts, maybe just one or two, that went back a lot further than what they have at Dennings Point. Hmm. But I'm very familiar with the whole collection. Okay. So, Evan, I see you've brought a, a flute along with you, and is that that's part of your culture, I'm guessing. Yes, it's not well known, actually, but in the historical records, they show that when colonists would arrive, the natives would gather and play reed flutes for them. So that's how reed flutes were used, and this is a reed flute. So I thought I'd, you know, honor everyone who has come to our land with a reed flute. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. Does that have a name? I just made it up. <laughs> improvising is, is like the way for oh, us. Wow. We do a lot of improvising on the flute to let us be a vehicle for the great spirit. Okay, great. Thanks, Evan. It's been uh, fascinating and, uh, and very informative. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Highlands Current Podcast. This episode was produced by Zach Rogers and recorded and edited by Johnny Taylor of Beacon AV Lab. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, leave us a review on your listening app of choice, and consider becoming a member of The Current. The paper and website and this podcast are offered free to the community, paid for with support from our readers and listeners. To join for as little as $24 annually, visit highlandscurrent.org join. That's highlandscurrent.org join. Or catch up anytime on the latest news at highlandscurrent.org or pick up a copy of the print paper every Friday. Thanks again. I'm Chip Rowe, editor of The Current, and we'll see you next time.